This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. You know, it seems to me that every single human endeavor is driven by psychology. It's driven by our feelings. That's true of anything we do. Take police work, the military, social work, take any kind of work there is, and it's driven by the psychology of individuals and the collective us. Even energy and water use, of how best to use these resources. My guest this week, Shazine Atari. First, Shazine Atari, thanks for being on Big Talk. My pleasure. Hello, Michael. Hi. Shazine, an associate professor at SPIA, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, Shazine studies, wouldn't you know it, the psychology of how and why people think about resource use and the environment. And what an interesting topic that might be, because you would think that facts and data would be all we need, but it's a lot more than that. That's right. Um, So... Part of what governs us is what we know about something. And what also governs us is how we feel about something. So it's not enough to know that there's a problem. We need to be effectively motivated to act on the problem. So if we don't know, we don't act. But, ne- but knowing is a precursor for action. You would think that all you have to do is throw out the data and everybody would be on board. But it's not working that way. In fact, there are people who are saying the data is nothing to me. Which is really problematic, right? So as a scientist, uh, I care a lot about data and what the data say about the world, because that's how we know science and what's true and what's not. But we're also social creatures. So we're governed by social relationships. We're governed by our in-groups. We're governed by what our family and friends think. So there's a lot of things that's pulling our attention in different ways. And that actually deals a lot with how we act towards resources and how we act towards big problems. So take uh, the COVID vaccine that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Right. And there's a lot of science about how effective that is, but there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy as well. And that's determined by how people feel about vaccinations, how people feel about information, where they're getting their information from. So it's not enough for just the CDC to say, hey, get vaccinated, or for for President Biden to say, hey, everyone, please get vaccinated. That's not enough. So we need to sort of think about what are the different landscapes of information that exists that people need to navigate through in order to be both well-informed citizens, but also effectively motivated to act, both to get vaccinated, but also to save our resources for the future. From Shazin Atari's Wikipedia page, here's the quote. She studies how and why people make judgments and decisions that they do with regard to resource use and how to motivate climate actions. That's what you're doing these days. You're trying basically to answer one question, probably many questions, but this one question is, 
why don't people conserve energy and water? That's one question, and that's embedded in a larger question, which is how do we activate individuals in order to solve a large, huge existential crisis that we're facing, which is climate change? And so my research really tries to understand individual decision-making and decision science in trying to figure out how do individuals such as you and me fit into this larger framework of trying to solve these huge big problems that we're facing. And for me, my, the big problem that I've been working on for the past decade has been climate change. Climate change. And uh, water falls, uh, falls into that because the climate change is affecting the availability of water. How specifically is that happening? So for example, uh, you and I live in Bloomington, Indiana, where precipitation, which is rainfall, is becoming more irregular. Oh. And so rainfall uh, is very tied into our food systems and our farmers, we're an agrarian state. We have lots of farmland and farmers. And so they are very reliant on rainfall. And so if you have more variation in rainfall, that's going to really hurt our farmers. It's going to hurt their livelihoods. It's going to hurt our state. And so we really should care about climate change and water availability and energy availability because those are resources that we need on a day-to-day -day basis. But a lot of people actually don't think about where their food comes from or where their water comes from or where their energy comes from. And so a lot of our lab has worked on trying to understand the way people think about these systems. We've actually had students come into the lab and draw out what the water system looks like and think about, hey, where does energy come from? Or where do you want our energy systems? How do you want our energy systems to work? Now, Shaz, let me give some um, props to why you're someone we should listen to. In 2009, you uh, won the Outstanding Teaching Award in the Civil and Environmental Engineering School over at Carnegie Mellon University. In fact, Carnegie Mellon University is where you got both your master's and your PhD in civil and environmental engineering. Before that, you'd gone to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where you studied engineering physics. In 2018, Science News named you, Shaz, one of the 10 scientists under the age of 40 to watch. Boy, that must have been exciting. Yeah. And then the very next year, you became a U.S. citizen. You were born in Mumbai, India. You were raised in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And the funny thing about Dubai is while you were there as a young girl, you watched as the whole desert area there on the Arabian Peninsula, you watched as the desert was transformed into one of the world's great metropolises over time. And I grew up in the Middle East, in Dubai. Yeah. Uh, and I was there from 1981 up until the year 2000. And during this time, like it literally transformed from having a few buildings and roads and being a very brown landscape, lots of sand, lots of ocean, to trans being transformed into a, a big uh, burgeoning city where lots of shopping malls, they have an indoor ski resort in the middle of the desert in a shopping mall. 
um, lots of um, buildings, lots of tourism, uh, lots of people. So it really, like the idea of development, and this is, you know, I show um, a photo presentation to my students at SPIA, where people think of development as happening gradually over time. But sometimes development can just take a span of like 10 years and you can see an entire landscape transforming. In the long run, if you look at it now, some of the tallest buildings on earth are in Dubai. In fact, they've built out into the water. They've created artificial islands that look like plants even. They look like trees from above. In the long run, has this metropolitanization, I just invented a word, has it been a net good or a net bad for the environment there? So if you're looking at it just from the environment, I think I would say that it's been a net bad because there are lots of challenges that come with these types of development, with this sort of flavor of development. And so some, some examples are dealing with sewage treatment uh, for these um, islands that you were talking about dealing yeah. with infrastructure problems, dealing with human rights issues, uh, because most of the country is built on, on the backs of immigrant workers. Ah. And in many respects, they're not treated very well. But if you're talking, I mean, but development is sort of a two-pronged uh, approach because the thing is, you know, countries want to develop. I mean, uh, you know, you and I are sitting in this amazing country of America where we've actually gone through all of the development already. Like we've done, we've gone through this very rapid industrial revolution over time. Yeah. And so now the countries that are sort of uh, still going through that, they, you know, it's, it's in their rights. It's in their interest to sort of want to go through that similar development phase as we've gone through. And so I understand that. So that makes sort of this who should act, the moral imperative of who should act on climate uh, pretty straightforward in terms of who has emitted the most, because most of our carbon emissions, which is related to climate change, has come from uh, the Industrial Revolution up until right now from the industrialized world. And so burning are, fossil fuels, right? That's exactly right. Burning fossil fuels, burning coal, burning natural gas. And so um, we're responsible for, for the problem. And so we really need to act now in order to solve the problem. When you saw this huge city coming about, did it spur you into becoming the scientist that you are now? So it was not immediate. It was kind of a circuitous path because my dad worked in an engineering workhouse and he likes repairing machines. And my mom worked in the bank. And so when I, when I was filling out my forms to come to the United States for my undergrad, it was a choice between physics and art. It was very different. And so my dad was like, all right, you know, physics, might as well just do physics, right? Because that's sort of, um, sort of uh, where his heart was. And yeah. so I ended up doing physics, and then I spent some time during my undergrad uh, working in a lab in Urbana-Champaign with a very interdisciplinary physicist. And so I worked in his lab with a biologist, with, a, with um, uh, uh, an experimental equipment. And so it was really cool with an entomologist, Mae Barenbaum, 
and others. So it was really neat to see how all of these fields can work together to answer interesting problems. So that's what started my love of both for nature as well as for interdisciplinary research. Now, after you got your PhD, you went out and tried to study how people think about water use. That's right. You found some interesting, let's say, dichotomies. So we actually, and this was work done with uh, two phenomenal students at the time, Kelsey Poinsett Jones and Kelsey Hinton. And what we did was we, uh, together, we designed a study where we had roughly uh, 500 students at Indiana University draw what they thought the entire water system looks like. So where does water come from? How do you use it in the home? And what happens to the water once it goes through your sink? And what was really interesting for us is that there were lots of um, specific misperceptions or faulty mental models of how the system works. So let me tell you some of them. Yeah. For example, a lot of students think that the water system ends at the home. They don't really understand what happens with wastewater. A lot of students think wastewater systems and water treatment systems are the same, when in fact they're very, very different. Uh Wastewater, treating wastewater requires a lot more energy than treating treating, uh, water that comes from your water source. Yeah. In fact, some of the drawings that we saw were uh, mind-boggling. One of our favorites in the lab was a, a drawing where a student said, water comes from the cloud, it enters the shower, and then magic happens. And that's how the water system works. So if you have these mental models that are magical, that you know, these resources happen through magic, that's really problematic because it might really shift the way how you value these systems, how you value infrastructure, and how you're willing to pay, how much you're willing to pay for them. You also found uh, through one study that uh, people would look at certain machines, certain appliances, and determine that the ones that used a lot of water, they would think didn't use that much water. And the ones that used a little bit of water, they thought used a lot more. They had it reversed. That work actually started in the energy world. So when I was a PhD student, especially coming from physics, I was really interested in how people thought about how much energy different appliances used. So we just asked people, hey, assume a 100-watt light bulb uses 100 units of energy. How many units of energy would your air conditioner take or would your dishwasher take? We did a similar study on water, which is the one that you're referring to. So we said, all right, everyone knows what a gallon of water looks like because we buy gallons of milk. Right. So a gallon is very, yeah, it's a thing. It's much harder to do with energy than to do with water because when you ask people, what is a kilowatt hour, they have no idea. When we ask people, hey, how many gallons of water do these different activities use? And what's really interesting is that people's perceptions of water use are much more accurate than people's perceptions of energy use, which Uh is good news because we can visualize water, but energy is harder to visualize. But also there are these uh, misperceptions where there are these slight overestimates at the low end, but huge underestimates at the high end. So people really tend to underestimate the amount of water taking a shower takes or taking, uh, you know, that you use to water your lawn, things like that. 
And that's just because when you get at the higher end of the scale, people cannot, people have a hard time visualizing these large quantities of water. Uh -huh. And so at that point, we need to really understand how to help people gear shift between thinking about small quantities of water, which are in the gallons, to 50 gallons, which is roughly your bathtub, which is roughly 42 gallons, yeah. and then going to things that are like, you know, watering your lawn, which is a lot more than that. This brings up an old thing I remember hearing when I was a little bit younger. You would think that when you take a shower, you're just using a little bit of water. But if you're taking a bath, you're using a giant amount of water. And it turns out that the shower uses a ton more water than just taking a bath does. So it's not, it's not as simple as that. So it depends uh, on, on what your shower head is. Uh -huh. the number of gallons that go through your shower head, and also how long you're taking that shower for. So well, I take very long showers. Let okay, me so tell then you in that. that case, Michael, stick, stick to, I don't know, you know, take shorter showers, right? <laughs> so, um, so just to do the quick math for you, so if you have like a, a one-gallon flow head, and if you're taking a 10-minute shower, or a 15-minute shower, or a 20-minute shower, that's 20 gallons of water whereas a bathtub is roughly 40 gallons of water if you fill it to the top. So it's a 20 to 40 if you're taking a 20-minute shower with a very efficient water head for a shower. Uh -huh. so if, you, if you have a two, uh, uh, two gallons per minute uh, shower head, that's going to be roughly equivalent if you're taking a bath, if you're taking a 20-minute shower. So sorry, I'm doing a lot of mental math very quickly for you. So what, what I'm trying to say here is the on average in the United States, bath, uh, showers are roughly eight minutes. Yeah. Uh, on, on average in the United States, baths are roughly 40 gallons. So it really so if you were to do a few things in your home in order to make your home more efficient, I would say um, buying a more efficient flush and buying a more efficient shower head are relatively cheap options, but they would save a lot of water. And that brings up an interesting paper that you wrote, and it's got a it, sort of a funny little title, and it was called Don't Rush to Flush. That's, that sounds pretty obvious, and I remember, boy, I'm going to say back in the early 90s, I went out to the Bay Area in California, and at that time, this is true, they were telling people, flush your toilet once a day, because they were having a real water crisis at that time. It's interesting, right? Because if you look at indoor water use in the home in the United States, the number one water user indoors is your toilet. Yeah. And so what people don't do is they don't aggregate the number of flushes that they do per day. Right. They just think about the individual flush. So on average, toilets use up a lot of water. But going back to your comment about California, so a lot of our conversation today is really focused on individual behavior. Yeah. But if you look at California and the most recent water crisis that they've been through in the past few years, you know, the number one water user in California is actually agriculture as opposed to households. Oh, yes. And, but a lot of people think agriculture should not be touched in terms of efficiency. And so where the more elastic out of the two between households and agriculture might be households. And so if households were told, hey, decrease your water use by 25%, they were actually able to do that in the last water crisis because there are lots of things that we can do in order to decrease our water use. But the larger systems thinking is that individuals are important, but we really need to change our, 
our systems. And that's yes. where, I mean, so it's individuals are great, but in order to deal with climate change, we need to change our systems. Individuals by themselves, even in aggregate, are not going to be enough to solve the problem. Speaking of agriculture, you make me think of something I read just recently. Uh, there were some uh, uh, international space station photos of the Arabian Peninsula. And they were showing, you know how when you look down when you're in an airplane and you see the circles, uh, uh, the irrigation circles, sometimes in deserty areas. Well, on the Arabian Peninsula, they have, you know, huge tracts of those circles of irrigated land where things are growing in the middle of this brown sand. And it turns out that even in the Arabian Peninsula, they're starting to run out of water. And those circles are starting to sort of fade away now. While I was growing up in the UAE, and I've not kept in touch since I've left, but while I was growing up, most of our water use actually came from desalination. So we're right by the Arabian Sea. And so we have large desalination plants. So what desalination is, you take seawater, you use a lot of energy to remove the salt, and right. then you make that into portable drinking water. And so that's where most of our household water use came from. And so desalination was quite big then, and I think it's still quite big. But it's very expensive. It's very energy expensive. It takes a lot of energy to, to convert seawater to drinkable water. Again, there's an energy, food, water, climate nexus where all of these things are extremely connected. And we need to sort of, when we work on one, we need to be cognizant of the other aspects of, the, of these problems that our work on one touches. This may sound basic, and I'm assuming based on what you're saying that what I'm going to say is not true, but it is an idea that I and many others have in our heads. It was my understanding that, as you mentioned, that there is a water cycle. And, you know, you've heard the old line that we're drinking the same water that the dinosaurs drank. Now, can it be that we're running out of water? The thing is, you do not want to be drinking untreated water. It's not that we're running out of water, we're running out of clean water. And so the thing is, when you pollute water, you have to then spend a lot of energy to treat that polluted water to make it clean again for us to be able to use it in our homes. That takes a lot of energy. And so it's not that we're running out. I mean, and so that's the first the first problem. The second problem is water moves around. And yes. so there's some places, so when I said earlier in the show that Indiana, the water here is becoming more variable, the thing is it's, it's given that water moves around, it takes energy to transport water to places that need it the most. So right. think about places like Las Vegas or Dubai. So you need a lot of energy to transport water to where these big cities are, even though these big cities are built in uh, very dry, arid areas. And so there are sort of two issues with what you said. One is, yes, but, uh, and the but there is, is that, you know, we need clean water. And then the second thing is water moves around. So the, we have to sort of keep water where we need it. What a problem. And yet it is really hard for people like me. I'm a dope when it comes to science, even though I'm interested in it. You've got the facts. I don't. How do you get the facts to me? I think you're selling yourself short. So you're a very effective communicator. And uh -huh. I think um, talking to people about the problem is a way to start. 
becoming politically engaged is a way to start. Part of it is communication, part of it is learning, and part of it is uh, action. Like, you know, talking to people, trying to get activated, both in your local community, in the state community, in the federal community, in the international community, so on and so forth. So do what you're really good at and start talking about the problem because that's, the, that's one of the best places to start. In about 1970, 71, the United States came up with the Environmental Protection Agency and we started making it official that we were gonna take care of our environment. Do you think that the general American, the average American, is smarter today than he or she was, say, 50 years ago about resource use, fossil fuels, water, the environment, and the climate? I would say so, yes. Well, that's good. You've got some optimism about it then. Well, no, it's not optimism, it's data. So, for example, um, there's this group at the at Yale that actually does year-by-year polling of the United States. And they ask questions about information about climate change, information about resources, information about policies and which policies would be more likely on how much uh, people understand the science. And over time, what you can tell is that a greater proportion of Americans understand the science, understand that it's a problem, understand that action is needed. So it's, it's not optimism, it's actually data. There's a neat little online resource for kids, and it's called Science News for Students. And they had a little profile of you. And in that profile, I learned that you're a big fan of science fiction novels. That's right. And apparently, you like science fiction novels because, as you say, you're quoted in here saying, they help us reimagine what our world could look like. It could be a utopian world we're coming into. It could be a dystopian world. Do you have any feelings about whether we're going to weather these crises? That's a really good question, Michael. And I'll try to answer it as honestly as I can, but it's a very difficult question as well. I love science fiction, and there's a lot of climate fiction now where people are writing stories about climate fiction. And in fact, it goes back all the way, I mean, to even before um, Octavia Butler, where she wrote Parable of the Soar and Parable of the Talent, where she talks about climate change. From where I'm sitting right now, I'm actually really worried about the future. We've already warmed our planet by one degree, and we're headed towards a world that's going to be warmed by two to three degrees. And we're already, as of today, facing a lot of climate change impacts. And what happens is is that it's very similar to COVID. It's the people who are the most vulnerable in our society that are going to bear the burden of the challenges that are going to happen. Shazin Atari is an associate professor at the uh, Indiana University School of uh, Public and Environmental Affairs. She's trying to figure out, among many other things, climate change solutions. How can we get to them by fusing facts and feelings? Because feelings and the psychology of all of us are what drive our actions here. Shazin, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael.